Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 106 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Fia. That is Gavin. And guys, have you ever gotten your wisdom teeth out? I sure have. Yes. Sucks. Bad times. You know what sucks even more? Is the fact that most people get it done when they're, you know, teenagers and can bounce back quickly and are young and vital and not when they're old, (laughs) decrepit 27-year-olds that then have to show up and teach groups of school children the next day who show up and call me a chipmunk and a divorced dad because my cheeks are swollen. Yeah. Divorced dad. Oh, no. I may have leaned into it a little bit, but still, like... Yeah, so it was rough. Um, Don't if you have wisdom teeth, I recommend keeping them in. Rough getting them out. Was there any um, new additions to? So, for context, Mike keeps a Facebook album of things that his students say he looks like, <laughs> and he'll every now and then I'll just see on my Facebook because the three of us are boomers and still use Facebook. Um, <laughs> Uh, every now and then, I'll just see like a random addition that Mike added of like uh, my favorite personal one that I remember is different variations of Mr. Bean. Yep. Um, uh, but any new additions from that? Uh, shockingly, no. There's been no specific additions. It's mostly just been Chipmunk. Gotcha. Which is a little bit disappointing, but also like I think some of them did feel a little bit bad for me. <laughs> yeah. Which is no, shocking because they don't feel bad for me usually. Yeah, I got mine out. I think senior, junior or senior year of basket or of uh, high school. I remember because I remember it was during basketball season, um, which was a real bummer because like just like kind of existing after you have your wisdom teeth out kind of sucks. But yep. then like any kind of like bouncing movement for sure uh, was real bad for me because um, mm-hmm. I still had braces at the time. And so everything in my mouth was just horrible. No, 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 no. Yeah, I actually uh, had a dry socket uh, happen to me when I got Oh, no. Yeah. How long was that a problem for? Probably like a good month or two. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Awful. Yep. Not fun, but very rare. And also, if you don't pick at your then uh oops sorry for swearing uh then <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did a swear <laughs> um then you should be okay so you listen to that kids any kids that listen to this right if you i mean that is our demographic is children bleep, uh, <laughs> you will uh you'll get a dry socket <laughs> I have oh, no well, idea what's happening. the The lead up to this episode was real weird for me. Me and Liz are currently watching through the office, and we just watched some of the the gag reels. Uh, we just finished oh. a season, and oh boy, we are in real weird moods after uh, yeah. <laughs> watching the gag reels of the office. Yeah. So, um. Anywho, that's Wait. it. Gives you any context for why I might be a little weird this episode. <laughs> that's okay. Um, anyway, some... let's let's sort of get into the episode. Sophia told us beforehand that she has a little bit of news for us, but did not tell us what it is. Sophia, what is what is your news? Uh, this relates in no way to the episode, but okay. uh, even better, I will I will be walking in my first Mardi Gras parade this weekend. Well, the weekend Ooh. after this comes out, and uh, I just wanted to let you know that this is a big step for. Uh, living and residing in Louisiana. I feel like this really like is a milestone in my life that I will be crossing and merging with the culture. Congratulations. Very nice. Mm-hmm. What are you going to be doing? Uh, are, like, are you just walking or are you fulfilling some other larger role? So the parade is called a Pushmo parade. I don't exactly know what it entails other than you have a push lawnmower that <laughs> is rigged up to have like a basket and stuff that you like put beads and toys in and then you just throw them. Mm-hmm. That's funny. That's really yep. funny. <laughs> yep. Yep. So that's really cool. Yeah. I'm excited. No, I'm happy for you. That's, that's really fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was my news. Awesome. So uh, before we get into any of the uh, various topics for this episode, uh, Fia, can you do some of our usual housekeeping for us? 
Yes, so don't forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to and to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, whatever you guys feel like. Uh, give us feedback about the show and any future topics you would like to hear in the podcast. And if you would like to be on the guest on the show, which you know we love, please be sure to fill out our guest form and this can all be found in the show notes. And with that, Gavin, what is our next uh, episode topic? Yeah, next episode, we are going to be continuing our series of talking about uh, each of the geologic periods in in pretty good detail. And so uh, the last one was episode 98, where we talked about the end Triassic mass extinction in the Triassic period. So naturally, moving more toward recent times, we're going to be talking about the Jurassic period uh, of Jurassic Park fame, even though, if I'm remembering correctly... Uh, in the original Jurassic Park movie, only one of the dinosaurs was actually from the Jurassic. Um, oh. So, fun times. Uh, but yeah, so that will be uh, next episode. And I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about it because it's a really cool sort of like the quintessential dinosaur period. Um, yeah. So yeah. Looking forward with to that, it. Mike, what's, uh, what's going on today in, in right, the so, olden times? Dead people. Um, so... Do you guys know, this is always a fun question I'd like to ask, because everybody gets the first two, and I may have asked this before on, uh, on this podcast, but there have been four presidents that have um, been assassinated while in office. Um, can you name all four? No. I mean, so, the, right, there's the two obvious ones. Which are? Which are? Lincoln and JFK. Okay. Um... William McKinley? McKinley is one of them. Nice. But I'm guessing that's not the one you're talking about. Correct. Then I, off the top of my head, I don't know the last one then. So the fourth one is uh, Garfield. Mm. I am also <laughs> not talking about Garfield, however. I want to expand the purview here. There have been a couple of famous assassination attempts ah, okay. against um, a number of... Um, I guess number of presidents, former presidents, future presidents, that kind of thing. Do any of those um, uh, come to mind? I know Reagan got shot once, I think. Reagan was famously shot and survived while he was president. Good. That is not what we're talking about here. I got nothing. Yeah, off the top of my head, I don't know. So there's um, a couple other famous ones. Uh, very famously, Andrew Jackson, while he was president, yes. was... Um, was somebody tried to shoot him with two different pistols. Both of those failed, pistols misfired. Failed both and then, times, and then yep. Jackson beat him up. Exactly. Jackson, old man that he was at that time, beat the crap out of the dude with his cane, which is hilarious to me. That is also not what we're talking about today. Um, in 1933, <laughs> President-elect uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, seven days before his inauguration, was the subject of an assassination attempt. Um, somebody tried to uh, Somebody tried to shoot him. He missed his target and did not hit FDR. However, he wound up hitting this dude, Anton Cermak, who was the mayor of Chicago, um, and oh. he died uh, just under three weeks later from that. Oh, wow. um, and I was shocked when I learned this. Um, just, I had heard about this a while ago and then rediscovered it just in preparation for this episode. Nobody ever talks about the fact that JFK came pretty close to being killed, or pardon me, not JFK, FDR, yeah. right before he was inaugurated, which is, as far as I'm concerned, Absolutely incredible. Yeah. yeah. And the guy, so the um, the attempted assassination took place on, I guess it was an assassination, just not for the correct person, February 15th, 1933, and this dude was executed March 20th, 1933. So it took him oh, wow. all of a month, which is uh, wild. Shockingly fast. Shockingly fast. It was the 1930s, so, you know, what are you going to do? Right. I feel like the death penalty was much less uh, scrutinized than it is today. Just yeah. a touch. So that is our uh, our Today in History. And now we are going to go ahead and learn about something that could be used to clean up the blood from an incident like that. Sponges. Well, first, Just kidding. we got to learn what else is going down in the swamp besides Mardi Gras. Oh, we're doing Swamp Corner. Too, apparently. Yeah. yeah, Sophia, what do you got for Swamp Corner? For Swamp Corner today, I'd like to talk about a special invertebrate that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, imagine a shrimp. 
but also imagine that it has a claw, one claw that is almost half the size or more of its body. Love that. Uh, this is the snapping shrimp, aka uh, the pistol shrimp. They're so cool. They are in the family Alphidae. Yeah, they're awesome. Snapping shrimp. Really love them. Yes. So I'll explain it in a second. Uh, there's over a thousand species in the family. They grow to like 1.2 to 2 inches. So they're kind of small, but they like to dig burrows and they're found in coral reefs, oyster reefs, and seagrass habitat. Most of them are uh, tropical or subtropical and found in marine waters. And so the reason why that they're called snapping shrimp is because they have this disproportionately large claw that uh, they can open uh, in like a 90 degree angle with like their pincer and then like make a quick snap. And within like the closing of their claw, it creates this, uh, there's like an air bubble that shoots out in between the um, claw and it creates a sound and uh, has some pressure associated with it that can stun uh, prey and actually uh, is used for them to like, you know, stun some fish or Mm -hmm. whatever they choose to knock out and then kind of eat them. Um, They're really great for the really great cues for underwater acoustic research. I know that um, my advisor has been, uh, listening to the oyster reefs that I've been working on, there's a lot of snapping shrimp that have been found um, or heard on the oyster reefs that I'm working on. And some a fun fact that I found is that there are some species of snapping shrimp that actually have mutualistic relationships with fish. And so this one, this one that I found that was found on coral reefs is that there's this pistol shrimp that shares a burrow with a goby fish. And basically the shrimp makes the burrow and like keeps it uh, clean and tidy. And then the goby uh, basically acts as a bodyguard and like looks out and like protects and watches for danger. And even when they leave their home, they kind of hold hands. The shrimp antenna will like uh, touch the fish tail and they'll like swim around. And then the, yeah, so cute. (laughs) The shrimp can't really see that well. And so the fish can kind of see a little better. So when the fish sees like something that's dangerous, it'll make this like flicking motion with the tail that will alert the shrimp and then they'll both go and run and hide back into their home, which I thought was. Yeah. Like, like pistol shrimps are super cool. If you, if you've never heard of them before, definitely look them up just because some of the things that they do with like physics with how they like snap their claw and like do the stun thing is like crazy right Um, yeah i did not do it justice (laughs) yeah they they do it with so much force that it like produces light yep wow and not just like you know like a spark or something like you were to hit like something metal on metal like that no like it makes uh it's called a cavitation bubble where it's mm-hmm. like it creates like a vacuum that then implodes on itself with so much force that it and so much energy that it gives off light. It's crazy. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, also, uh, I know a handful of people who have tried to keep them in like uh, aquariums, and they are never successful. Uh, yeah. They do they break constantly the glass break or... the glass? Yeah. 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 But another cool thing. Oh, one last cool thing about uh, shrimp is that they also like to live in sponges. And I thought that was a really nice thing. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. So getting into the main topic of today's episode, sponges. So sponges, or sometimes you'll hear them called specifically sea sponges, although there there are a handful of freshwater species. Yes. Um, they're almost all marine. Uh, they are a group of animals that are extremely weird because they are incredibly simple compared to other animals. So we're getting a little into, into Fia's wheelhouse here with some marine invertebrates. Yeah. But, man, are these some weird little guys. So let's learn about them. Sponges make up the phylum, you know, in sort of the, the grand scheme of biology. There's kingdom phylum 
So the second largest grouping of, of life, phylum porifera, that's their scientific name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're defined by being benthic, which means they live on the bottom of uh, the, the seafloor. Love it. Sessile, which means they don't move much. And uh, they are metazoans, which effectively just means that they're animals. Um, and basically, they take in water, filter out food from it, and then move it out of their... Um, it has a technical term. I'm not going to use a whole bunch of technical terms this episode because with sponges, they're real weird. And... Um, they're not relevant to other things. So it's not like I'll ever even be able to call back to these scientific terms that I'm kind of teaching here. So, um, (laughs) but before we get too much into sponges about like different parts, let me sort of describe them to you in the best way that I could figure out how. Um, So it's not like the kitchen sponge that you have hanging out, uh, you know, on top of your sink or something. So first, Imagine two tubes, basically like a straw that you would get like a restaurant or something. Um, But one of them is a bit wider than the other. The small tube goes inside the big tube. And then between them is a layer of jelly. There's also some tunnels that go from the outside of the outer tube through the jelly to the inside of the inner tube. And lastly, the inside of the inner tube is lined with these little movable hairs that sort of push water from one end of the tube to the other. And that's basically a sponge. Hmm. Yeah. Does a, does a sponge, the uh, sea creature, um, does that have any relevance any relationship not literally but even just like in function or anything to a like kitchen sponge yeah that's why we call them the same word uh originally so the ancient greeks and uh ancient romans would use sea sponges that they would find in the mediterranean for things like that yeah um so i think like historically they were used for scrubbing and exfoliating because they're made out of pretty durable but if it's like dried out and dead, uh, you know, safe mm-hmm. material. Some of them can actually be quite irritating. They have some, you know, chemical defenses that irritate the skin. Um, but if they're dried out and dead, yeah, a lot of them can be used for like exfoliants. And that's why they are called the same thing. Gotcha. Okay. And also why SpongeBob looks like a kitchen sponge. SpongeBob. <laughs> so again, tube within a tube with some jelly. That's basically all a sponge is. And you might be thinking, that's really weird compared to any other animal that I've ever seen. Um, And you would be right. They are extremely strange uh, because sponges are the only animals without true tissues. Yep. So tissues, if you think about them sort of within your own body... Tissues are a collection of cells that are specialized to do a certain task. For example, uh, your muscles, you know, your muscle cells look very, very different from, say, your skin cells or your eye cells, things like that. Um, And sponges don't really have that per se. Pretty much any one of their cells can turn into any other kind of their cells. So they do have specialized cells, but they're not sort of defined or or restricted the same way a lot of other animal cells are. And we'll get more into that in a little bit. Um, They don't have any kind of nervous system. So they they don't have nerves or... uh, This is one of the rare examples where I will actually confidently say, like, they don't really have, like, a sense of feeling per se. Mm-hmm. you know there's sort of mm-hmm. like an old thing that like i would hear a lot growing up like in a town that did a lot of fishing is that like fish don't feel pain which is obviously not true um if you understand anything about biology like they react when you put a hook through their mouth um so yeah they probably feel pain uh but yeah. sponges i really don't think they have any way 
just like understanding what I do now about their biology, they don't have any kind of nerve or much of an external sensory setup. Which again, it's just very strange to think about with an animal. It's like, how is this even an animal if it doesn't have any way to feel its environment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They also don't have a circulatory system or Mm -hmm. a digestive system. And if you sort of, again, just thinking about your own body, a nervous system, a circulatory system, and a digestive system. That's like 90% of what you are. Yeah. (laughs) So what how does a sponge sponge um so uh like i said sponges don't really have tissues because their cells are that are specialized are sort of able to turn into a different type of specialized cell uh for example if a cell from like your stomach got into your bloodstream and went to your heart for example it can't turn into a heart cell um however if uh a, a cell from like the outer tube of a sponge makes its way to the inside, to the inner tube. From what I understand, it can just turn into that kind of cell. Hmm. Totally fine. Can we back up for a second? Sure. I'm having trouble with your analogy of an outer tube and an inner tube because when I think of a sponge, for the most part, I think of a round blob with a lot of different holes. Are those yes. holes the tubes you're talking about, or is there a central tube? No, there is a central tube. Got it. Okay. The holes like on the side that you were thinking of, those are sort of the tunnels that gotcha. go from the outside tube through the jelly into the inside tube. Cool. Um, think of it sort of like an insulated pipe, almost. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, and I'll explain a bit about how their biology works here. So basically how sponges make their living is, like I said, they are benthic and they are sessile. So they settle on the seafloor in one spot and then grow from that spot. Um, they don't move once they land more or less. I'll give a little detail about that later. Um, but so... Let's, let's say the, the tubes are pointing vertically. And so, like I said, there's one inside the other, but they're both like standing up as if you have a straw inside a cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will bring water inside the, like from the outside environment into the middle tube through those tunnels that go through the jelly. The little hair cells that are on the inside of the inner tube, they, the hair is sort of swirl and they control water movement they'll sort of suck water in filter out different food particles and then push water out through the top of the tube cool and that's that's how sponges do and i'll talk more specifically about some of their um you know weird ways that they do food things or anything uh in more detail uh, in a little bit but that just to sort of help visualize what we're talking about here because like i said uh it's really weird because this is as unlike us as an animal can be right um and so since we're talking about all the different sort of cells like the little hair cells let's talk very briefly without without going into too much of like the science terminology about some of their types of cells only because they only have a few if it was a much more complicated animal. Uh, I wouldn't go through all of this, but there's only a handful of different types. So, um, firstly, we have the kind of cell that makes up the outer tube. And so the outer tube and the inner tube are both only one cell thick. No. That seems like not thick enough. You would think, but they seem to do fine. Nice. Good for them. Is there anything else that's that thin? Like, is there another, is there anything to compare that to? Like, no, yeah, actually, like, you know, uh, uh, a cat's left back toenail is also (laughs) a cell. Like, is there, like, is there anything else that'd be like, oh, yeah, like, that makes sense now that I've heard it compared to something. In animals, off the top of my head, I can't 
think of one. Incredible. Yeah. Like I said, extremely strange animals. So both the outside tube and the inner tube are each one cell thick. And then the jelly is not made up of cells per se. There are cells floating around in it, but uh, it is sort of like um, just like a goop that is produced by some of these floaty around cells that float around in the goo and then produce more goo as they go. Hmm. So yeah, outer tube. The inner tube has those uh, cells with the hairs that move the water. That's it. And it's just one layer of those. And they're not even particularly well, like, um, fit together. Like, the cells can kind of move around each other. Because they're just sort of attached to the jelly. (laughs) And this is, like, for all sponges? I'm generalizing a bit. Okay. But yes. Um, the, the tube in a tube analogy is very simplified. Uh, and as I'll mention later, that is actually the minority of sponges are that simple because in order Mm -hmm. to get bigger and like, if you've ever seen a picture of a sponge, it's layout is more complicated than that in a way that I'm going to talk about in a bit. Cool. Um, so, uh, they have the, the holes that connect the, or like the, the tunnels that connect the outside through the jelly to the inner tube. That is one specific type of cell. Again, only one cell thick. Uh, they have sperm and egg cells that float around because uh, almost all sponges are hermaphroditic. They produce both male and female gametes. So, uh, and both of them um, float around in the goop until it is time to reproduce. And then they basically just uh, fit them into the inner tube and then they just flow out with the water that they are plucking their food out of, that they are flowing anyway. Hmm. Um, then there's the cells that make the jelly, cells that make what are called spicules, which are the hard parts of sponges, and that's yes. how they re- stay rigid, despite being made out of two layers of cells and jelly. Um, it, they're sort of like these little shards, and it varies mm-hmm. from group to group of sponges. Uh, but they can be made out of calcium carbonate, which is the same thing as most other uh, marine invertebrates. Or in some cases, they can be made out of silica, which is glass. Or uh, they also can uh, produce a unique chemical to sponges called spongin. Cool. Yeah. So again, this is just Uh, to give them rigidity. um, And so that they don't just collapse into a puddle of goop. Mm-hmm. They have a very basic type of muscle cell. They can basically expand and contract the opening at the top of the, the tubes and then also sort of constrict each of the little tunnels that lets water flow in. Um, if it gets like really silty in the water, they can sort of close themselves up so they don't just like get all covered in silt and uh, get buried. They have a sort of immune system. I didn't find a further explanation on that. They have some form of an immune system of some kind. Um, a sort of immune the, system. Okay. Yeah. Not really elaborated on much. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think it was mostly like, well, we don't see them constantly be infected with bacteria, so they must have some form of immune system. We just don't. <laughs> Super know what it is. Oh, okay. Um, nice. Yeah. Although, my, uh, oh, go ahead. My uh, advisor, um, she actually did her PhD work on uh, some sponges, and she knows a lot about sponges and still does a lot of work with sponges. So I could probably ask her about it and see what she says. Yes, please do. Um, but what I was uh, saying with the with the although is that uh, depending on what species of sponge you're looking at, um, somewhere around half of the dry weight, so if you were to take it out and just let it dry, um, about half of that weight could be made up of cells that don't belong to the sponge. Mm. Like from bacteria and things that seem to be... um, That's incredible. ...living with it like symbiotically or just living there. Um, 
But like I said, they don't seem to be negatively impacting the sponge in any way. Um, or if they are, uh, we just don't understand anything about that interaction. Or at least yeah. from what I could find. I'm sure your advisor would have much more to say uh, about that than I was able to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, they have a type of cell that just sort of floats around in the jelly and can, that can become any of these other types of cells when needed. So it's like... That's uh, pretty handy. Yeah. Like a, a floating, you know, staff member at like a restaurant or something where it's like, hey, I need you to go wait these tables or, hey, I need you to go wash these dishes or, or whatever. Cool. So those that's the different sort of parts of a sponge. This next section is labeled weird sponge things because i just wanted to hit you with some cool sponge facts here let's go so like i mentioned a little earlier the cells really aren't connected to one another very well uh even in the same layer they just kind of float around it seems like like they're connected but not nearly as well as say like um one of your like stomach liner cells is to the one next to it they're very loosely connected Mm -hmm. Uh, as i alluded to earlier as well some types of sponges in fact most types of sponges are actually more complex than the basic tube inside a tube layout uh yeah in fact they can only be if they are that that basic structure you really can't see them because just like the physics of how they need to build themselves doesn't allow them to grow bigger without getting a more complex internal shape. Basically what they do is within the tunnels that bring water from the outside to the inside, uh, they'll build these little chambers of uh, just sort of like a pocket. So it'll be like tunnel from the outside into a pocket into another tunnel and then create sort of these chambers that eventually all lead to that middle tube and then up out through the top. Yeah. But these chambers basically just gives more anchor points for the, the skeleton, the, the hard parts to sort of anchor to, and also gives them a lot more surface area to be plucking out nutrients from the water. Mm-hmm. So most sponges are a bit more complicated. Um, but the general tube within a tube thing is just a good way to visualize them. I mentioned that they are sessile. However, some sponges technically can move across yes. the seabed, but How? they have a top speed of around two millimeters per day. <laughs> which I've heard uh, of that for boy. us here in America is less than a tenth of an inch. Per day. But like, after 10 days, they've moved an inch. Yeah. And again, uh, I don't super know, I don't really know how (laughs) they managed to do this. Mm -hmm. But uh, apparently they can just sort of scoot along the seafloor. One of the most uh, interesting things that I found out about them is that some of them as larvae, uh, most things in the ocean, when they're larvae, they're just sort of free-floating. They don't immediately, as soon as, you know, the egg is fertilized, just drop to the ocean floor and start doing their thing. Um, a lot of them are free-floating and just float around. However, in sponges, some of their cells are light-sensitive and have are basically just extremely, extremely simple eyes. Just enough to tell light from dark. Not enough to actually, like, see as we think about it. But, yeah, uh, larval sponges can have sort of eyes, which was not what I expected from sponges. Yeah, not what I wanted to hear. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Maybe that's how we got SpongeBob. Maybe that means, is SpongeBob a child? Is that what that means? Well, he's old enough to get his, you know, boating license, so at least a teenager. Well, he's old enough to own his own house, I guess, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was the 90s. Anyone could buy their own house. (laughs) (laughs) It's a boomer joke. Yeah, it sure is. (laughs) Um, And then lastly, like I said, the spicules, which are sort of the individual, like, sort of shards that make up 
their structure and allow them to be a structure instead of just a pile of goo. Um, they can be made from lots of different materials, but most commonly, um, it is calcium carbonate. Pretty much the same, the same thing that corals make their reefs out of, um, what things like bivalves sort of make their <laughs> shells out of, uh, different forms of calcium carbonate, but it's all technically calcium carbonate. Um, but the, the ones that you see most often as sort of as fossils are uh, made out of silica, which is glass, mostly just because glass preserves better and isn't yeah. as chemically volatile <laughs> as uh, calcium carbonate, because calcium carbonate dissolves in acid, whereas glass does not. Have you ever heard of glass sponge reefs? Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, a whole subgroup of sponges called glass sponges that um, make their uh, I, I I lost the word spicules. There it is. Of <laughs> out of glass, and they can actually be quite sharp. Um, however, for the most part, I'm I'm sort of making it sound like they're almost like cactuses with their spikes. They're like microscopic, um, but because they there are so many of them, they sort of interlock with each other and that's what mm -hmm. gives them their, their structure and support. Um, if you look, if you just look up glass sponge, it almost looks like, um, like a net almost of little mm. glass wires or little glass pieces. So this next section is what do sponges do? Because that was my natural inclination after learning about like what they are i'm like how do they even function because they are so simple you know they've only got like 10 different kinds of cells and they just sit on the seafloor and seemingly do nothing um, oh no oh i know you're so um, wrong they do so much <laughs> i know um so if sponges are more simple than even things like jellyfish, what do they do all day? How do they spend their leisure time? Sponges are a weird kind of filter feeder. The Those hairs that are on the inside of the, the inner tube, they sort of, they're, they're what moves the water into the sponge and then out through the top. And they also sort of just like grab little food particles that get... You know, that are just floating in the water. They get stuck into the hairs and then absorbed into the hair cells. Some particles are caught inside the tunnels. If they're, like, too big to make it all the way through the tunnel, little food particles will just be absorbed by the cells in the tunnels. And if food particles are too big to even make it in the tunnel at all, they can be absorbed by the outer layer of cells that makes up sort of the, the outside tube. Mm -hmm. And so there are lots of different ways to become sponge food. However, uh, almost all of it is real small, like yeah. uh, <laughs> less than half a millimeter. Incredibly small. And uh, my next natural thought was, okay, so if all of them is catching food, but the hairs are sort of like the, the, the hairs catch like 90, 90 80, 90% of their food, um, how do, do they move the food around? Because they don't have a circulatory system. Mm -hmm. And for example, when you eat food, you know, you eat it, it goes into your stomach, your stomach breaks it down, and then the nutrients are absorbed in your small intestine, and the nutrients then go into your blood and then go throughout your body. Uh, with sponges, that's not the case. <laughs> sponges... What happens? More or less, each cell is responsible for its own food. Wow. Yeah. Um, and there is a little bit of a caveat to that. Those cells that are sort of the flexible ones that can just float around in the jelly um, and can turn into any of the other cells, they can sort of store food. And then, as I understand it, if they're just floating by with some of this food and a cell, uh, you know, in one of the tubes or, or that makes up the tunnel needs food, they'll just grab it from that one. Um, but unlike, you know, something like you, where your circulatory system is in dedicated pathways that are 
as much as evolution has a purpose, they are in each spot for a reason to deliver blood and nutrients and stuff to a specific part. These cells don't have a destination. They just float around and then something will just happen to grab food from it when one's nearby. Very carefree of them. Yeah. (laughs) And then my next thought also was like, okay, even you know, the, the, you know, your circulatory system moving nutrients around applies to like food, but also applies to so many other things. And the answer for sponges for that is that for the most part, they just don't need most of those other things. But the one that they always need is oxygen. And I'm like, mm-hmm. do they have any kind of system for oxygen? And the answer is also no. Uh, that's part, part, uh, potentially why each of the tubes is only one cell thick. So they can just naturally just get oxygen from the water. Um, because things like even like fish that live in the water um, have a circulatory system and need to get oxygen from their gills. You know, their stomach can't just directly absorb oxygen uh, from the water because even small fish, uh, that's too far for oxygen to move from the outside water into those cells. So that's why they need to have a circulatory system. But sponges, if you're only one cell thick, you don't have that problem. So uh, they can just naturally just diffuse their oxygen in and any other waste they can just diffuse out which is actually very efficient if you're simple enough to be able to pull that off wow yeah Uh, another weird thing is that there are some photosynthetic sponges sort of Uh, just like corals some of them have uh these uh you know, single-celled things that do photosynthesis that live inside the sponge. And in those sponges, very much like the corals, that's where the majority of their nutrients come from. Um, And they end up producing more oxygen than they consume. And so are very much like corals in that way, except uh, a little bit less efficient at it. Corals are really good at it. These sponges are much less efficient, but they, you know, net positive. Nice. Sort of in addition to that, a few sponges that live in these very deep sea uh, hydrothermal vents have symbiotic bacteria that can break down methane and they can use (laughs) methane for food. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. So, which is very uncommon. Um Especially for, like, there's a handful of uh, different kinds of worms that have these same kind of uh, methane-eating bacteria. But that's pretty much it. And then I was able to find, like, four species. Um, maybe that's an, a bit of a, a, an exaggeration, but very, very few species that are actually predatory? But... Yeah. I had no idea, uh, and I am still a little confused by it, but there are some predatory sponges, and uh, it's mostly that they're predatory in the same sense that coral technically is predatory. Um, Mm. It's sort of thought that they catch their food. Coral? uh, With these... Coral is technically... Are we just going to gloss over yeah. that? Or... Well, coral Are we gonna break uh, that is one down? more or less just an upside-down jellyfish. So they still have like the stinger parts of jellyfish. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, this is incredible. And so, yeah. Yeah, they still have the same like stinging cells as jellyfish do, um, only they're much, much smaller. And so the things that they catch with those little stingers are much, much smaller. Yeah. Um, and so with these sponges, it's kind of thought they do a similar thing, but they don't have they don't have the stingers. Um, so it's kind of thought that they catch their prey with like these long sticky threads, or potentially with uh, these spicules that are hooked, and they like have these out on like lines that they'll catch stuff with. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we haven't really been able to observe this because they live in really weird places. They live in places where there is not enough, you know, just nutrients floating around in the water for them to live on. Um, so they live like, 
most of them like five and a half miles beneath the surface, which is crazy. Very yeah. deep ocean. Um, and their prey is usually around like one millimeter in size. One millimeter. At most. So not exactly catching, you know, tuna. We're not going up to sharks here. Right. That so, would be really cool. Yo, yeah. That's like nightmare fuel. <laughs> yes. And so some last things before we get to the actual fossils on this paleontology podcast um, is uh, a little bit, uh, and I'm, I'm ad-libbing a little here because this was something I just kind of, I read, but then forgot to put in the notes. Um, sponges and like how big they can get and how long they live. Um, because uh, the answer is we don't super know <laughs> if sponges have a lifespan. Yeah. That seems like the kind of thing that we should know. Yeah. So just like there's, I think every, every handful of years, there's like a story that goes around about like the immortal jellyfish or right. whatever. Um, although that one cheats because it sort of Benjamin buttons itself and turns back into a larva and then starts its aging process over That's again. That's cooler though. That is really cool. Uh, but with sponges, they, it kind of seems like a handful of them, unless something happens, they'll hypothetically just won't die. Hmm. So based on uh, like growth rates, there are some that seem like they must be thousands of years old based on how big they are and based on, you know, how quickly we know they grow. So like the ones that you're, that are, you know, uh, roughly a meter wide, which isn't particularly big. If you think of like coral, you know, corals, a single, you know, coral colony can be dozens of feet wide. But one that's about mm -hmm. a, a sponge that is, is like three feet wide, that sponge is like multiple thousands of years old. That's crazy. And unlike corals, where each, you know, coral individual is just this tiny little guy the, the sponge is like a single individual. So like that individual must be those multiple thousands of years old, uh, which is real weird. Yeah. And so, uh, and the reason I sort of had that sort of tangent I wanted to get to was because I've seen a handful of like pictures or like clips of like somebody swimming inside a sponge, which oh. like number one, don't do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's actually quite hard because the water coming out of its its opening, uh, it is actually moving pretty good. Uh, they can actually yeah. pump water pretty. I mean, that sounds like a little bit of fun. Um, mm -hmm. Well, because the thing is, if you think about one that's uh, only like three feet wide, is granted this is you know one of the sources I found this on was Wikipedia, so I'll take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, but like if. Give or take, depending, I'm sure it depends on the species. If three feet wide is give or take 5,000 years old, if it's big enough for you to swim inside of, or at least sort of just like be inside of, even if you can't like turn around and stuff, um, mm -hmm. that thing's got to be like 10,000 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so, you really don't want to kill it. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, no. And maybe just don't harass wildlife, you know? It's just generally a, a good proposition. Just a PSA. Important yeah. message of today's podcast. Please do not harass wildlife. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, something yeah, that I would like ahead. to add is that, uh, and also plug myself really quickly, um, yeah. that sponges uh, have, I think, a lot of ecological importance. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit like, about that. The way they do nutrient cycling, uh, it especially in like oligotrophic systems, like they really like keep the process of like nitrogen and phosphorus going. In my first paper that I like co-authored, the topic was about how uh, sponges in subtropical seagrass sea beds influence primary productivity. So essentially, we found that with the presence of the sponge, like seagrass and the algae and um, other characteristics of the seagrass were actually increasing their productivity than in plots where there weren't any uh, sponges. And in the paper that I'm first authoring in that 
uh, is in review right now. Where, yeah, I know. I'm so close. <laughs> it's so close. I'm very excited. Sneak peek. Potentially, we found that uh, sponges and seagrass beds actually um, alter the fish and invertebrate communities. So uh, with sponges, there was kind of an increase or shift in fish and invertebrate abundance, whereas without sponges in seagrass, uh, they were different. So there's something going on that we don't uh, know the exact mechanism of um, because, you know, sponges don't really have much research compared to the complexity of what they are. Right. There's something going on there. And we were able to figure that out with uh, some of my advisors' PhD data that never got around to being analyzed and written up. And so I got to work on that. Cool. Yeah. yeah the One of the big things, like you were saying, that I that I saw – um, that they do in their environment is that they just like are really good at like cleansing and sort of filtering the water, just getting like yeah. g- gunky organic particles out of the water right. and like mm-hmm. improving water quality that way. Right. Um, and actually under like certain conditions, sponges can act as like a source of like nitrogen and phosphorus, or they can also act as a sink. So they can either absorb it or they can like give it off based on their like mutual relationships with the bacteria inside of them. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Fossil time. And uh, yes. very much like sponges, the fossil record of sponges is quite simple. Being the most simple animal, what that more or less means is that they branched off of the other animals the earliest so they have the least in common with all the other animals which means they're sort of the first one to branch off and start doing their own thing so for a long time it was like everything else it was thought that sponges didn't evolve until around 540 million years ago at the start of the cambrian period uh, when the cambrian explosion happened for a long time that was the earliest time that we saw any fossilized hard parts so things with shells coming around um Mm -hmm. so the first people studying paleontology and stuff assumed that like this must be when complex animal life started we now know that that's not true um but that was a very reasonable assumption to sort of make given the information at the time uh however the sort of date and and timeline of the earliest sponges has been very steadily creeping backward and backward and backward And here, I'm going to introduce a little concept that I don't think we've talked about too much on the podcast before, uh, but it's called a molecular clock. Have you have you heard of this, Mike Orphe? Molecular clock. I don't think so. I feel like I've heard of it, and I'm assuming I heard about it in like a pop science context where I was taught incorrectly what it was. Um, But I don't have a clue. I could I could see that. Yeah. So it's basically the concept of given how genetically different to let's, let's let's say species given how genetically different uh two species are based on like known rates of mutation you can sort of work backward to figure out how long ago those two groups split from each other hmm. this is a purely purely based on dna and purely based on how we understand rates of like genetic change and so, naturally, there are some problems with that, that as somebody who, like, mostly works with, like, the bones and the anatomy, that, that jump out to me. And that evolution is not constant. So, like, that rate of genetic change changes. It's not like yeah. it's changing at an exact rate of one gene changes per million years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. So there are lots of problems with this concept, but sometimes that's all you've got to work with. And so based on these molecular clocks and studying the DNA of sponges and comparing that to uh, all the other, you know, groups of animals, it seems like sponges should have split off from all of the other animals somewhere between a billion years ago and 750 million years ago. Hmm. Hmm kind of a big range right considering that i just said that for a long time it was thought that they didn't show up until 
uh, much more recent than that, 540 or so million years ago. You know, half that time. Yeah. So that is sort of the ballpark that, like, the geneticists tell the paleontologists, hey, go find some rocks from this time and see if you can find some sponges. But as is often the case in paleontology, we don't have the fossils that go back to uh, when the geneticists say they should. Um, The example that was given to me a lot in grad school was with hippos. So um, the closest relative of whales, at least that's living today, are hippos. And so hypothetically, there should be a hippo-like thing before whales show up if those if that's you know the closest relative the most common ancestor most recent common ancestor should look somewhat similar mm-hmm. however uh whales show up way before the first hippos that we find but the geneticists mm-hmm. are very adamant that we should find hippos uh much earlier than we do so that's uh, a, a more maybe relevant example or more, you know, relevant to humans example than sponges. Um, and over the last handful of years, I've actually seen a number of news articles pop up about sort of the, the new earliest sponge. And they're usually in the ballpark of 700 million to 800 million years ago, which is much more in the ballpark of what the geneticists say should be where we should be looking. Okay. Hmm. Uh, But for the most part, these are not fossils themselves. These are what are called biomarkers. And uh, basically sponges produce a handful of chemicals that are like unique to sponges. Like that spongin is one that no other group of animals make just sponges. Um, but they're also much smaller, just like single molecule chemicals they make that are fairly unique to them. And if the rocks are preserved well enough, those molecules or like slightly uh, varied versions of those molecules can be preserved as well. And people who understand chemistry way better than I do can find that in a rock. That's pretty cool. Which which blows my mind. Um, yeah. And, and they can tell from its molecular structure that it is similar enough to what modern sponges make that it is there any likely like, came from a sponge is there any indication like on the rock that there was something there like or are so, they just sometimes. looking at rocks and just like hoping for the best <laughs> sometimes uh but sometimes it is just like hey here's this marine rock from 900 million years ago let's see if there's some sponge stuff in it Oh my gosh. Sometimes it is like that. I mean, those are pretty well-funded groups, I would assume, because most scientists that I uh, know could not afford to just be like, hey, I'm going to go chemically test these rocks that I don't have a better reason to. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) So uh, some of these uh, potential biomarkers have been found in rocks as old as like 900 million years ago to over a billion years ago, even though these are pretty highly debated and you wouldn't think stuff with sponges would be this highly debated. Um, but that's because it's kind of a proxy debate for, uh, the first animals, because that's really what this means. The first sponges is more or less the same as the first animals. So that's why there's a lot of interest in this because, uh, we are those and and we like to know stuff about ourselves, but all of this sort of chemistry stuff aside, the first, real sort of body fossil of a sponge that is still kind of controversial uh but as somebody who doesn't understand sponges looks reasonable to me was just shy of 900 million years ago so like 890 i think was the the number that i kept seeing which is still really old but as with most groups of animals things really take off once we do finally get to the cambrian period or at least close to it. So in the ballpark of 600 to like 550 million years ago. And that's where sponges really start to become much more similar to what we see today. Uh, before it was just, we don't, we don't have a full body sponge from before this. So it's hard to say from, from before these times. Uh, 
But the general trend of sponges throughout their entire history, uh, from give or take 600 million years ago until now, is that sponges are really good at living where other things can't. And that is, I'm sure, in very large part due to how simple they are. If you don't need all these resources that, uh, you know, things like corals or um, things like bivalves that also make reefs, uh, if you don't, if you need less resources than, than them, when the environment gets bad, you can do well when others couldn't. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, whenever there's a mass extinction, you will very commonly see a pretty drastic increase in sponges in like the immediate aftermath, particularly reef building sponges, because corals are very notoriously not good at living through mass extinctions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And sponges build reefs or at least some kinds of sponges can uh, build reefs. And when the corals die off, these guys happily sweep in and take their place. Yeah, I think I I read something somewhere that like, that's like a likely possibility for the future with climate change, is that uh, corals gonna be dying, but uh, sponges might have a better chance of taking over these reefs. Yeah, and that wouldn't surprise me at all, uh, just because that's how it's been over the last 500 plus million years. Mm -hmm. And so um, sponges really haven't been the main reef builders for a very long time. Um, They haven't been, even when things get bad, like mass extinction bad, uh, they're still never the main part of a reef. Uh, they, they just sort of increase from what they were before the extinction. So in the Cambrian period, before corals really took off, uh, there was a group called the Archaeocyathens, which is a very common, uh, very famous group of sponges that only lived during the Cambrian, but they were sort of the only reef builders in the game at the time. So they're very uh, popular and very common to teach about during this time. Uh, but once the Cambrian ends and corals start taking off, they die out. We don't have any of them left today. Uh, in the Devonian and Silurian periods, so in the ballpark of 440 to 360 million years ago, a different group uh, called the Stromatoporoids were also generally pretty common and are often confused for stromatolites, which are, uh, we've talked about those a number of times, the single-celled, like, mats of photosynthetic bacteria that build up, like, mound shapes. Mm -hmm. Um, They also, their fossils look extremely similar, uh, which is why they have similar names. But they built reefs during this time because, in general, the world was not doing great. I think there were, there's, there was at least one big mass extinction and then several other small ones during this time. So in general, these sponges were doing pretty great. However, after the, you know, end of the Devonian period. So in, you know, from 360 million years ago through till today, sponges mostly look the same as they do today. You know, different species, but, like, the same groups were around. Uh, And sponge fossils are also generally kind of rare after this time, mostly because their skeletons, the actual hard parts, are Mm -hmm. made up of little tiny shards to begin with. And so when the sponge does die, uh, the little pieces just kind of fall apart. Hmm. Interesting. And just to sort of briefly mention like i said it gets real simple just like the sponges their fossil record uh there are four living classes of sponges three have been around all the way since the cambrian and one does not have a fossil record at all so that's about as simple as it gets (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah um 
and so for 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 a group of sponges that or a group of animals that is sort of as famous as sponges are and as important ecologically as sponges are uh i wish i had more to say about their fossils because they are really neat um yeah just one of the more boring groups of animals but even still as fia was mentioning earlier they do some really interesting things that yeah. uh, i wish we had more time to go into without getting a phd so. <laughs> yes that is pretty much going to be it on sponges. Hopefully, uh, our little... They actually kind of look like pineapples who live in, in the sea, some of them. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll be able to get a PhD and tell us about the rest of it some other time. No, no. <laughs> in the meantime, however, this has been oh, episode yeah. 106 <laughs> of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, that was Fia and Gavin, and we will see all of you guys in two weeks. Take care, everybody. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fanella Campanino. It was sound edited and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.